Welcome to your Actives Tech Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the war in Ukraine and what lessons we can draw from what has happened so far. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Actives Tech Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Ginny Panandes, Senior Director of the Democracy Forward at Microsoft. Hello, Ginny. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Um, so we have seen a recent report from Microsoft on the threat landscape related to the war in Ukraine. Can you give us an introduction to what you found in this uh, study? Sure. The report that we issued last week actually builds on a lot of work that we've uh, been doing over the past uh, 100 days or so, and uh, a report that we actually issued in April, which was really focused on cyber activity in Ukraine. What we had found is that there was sort of a general consensus that was building that Russia had not brought their A game when it came to um, cyber attacks on Ukraine. And that just did not line up with what we were seeing. And so we wanted to put together our findings and put it out there. Um, for for stakeholders to review and and reflect on. In this report, we we take a broader picture at what we've reflected on in the last 100 days of this war. We talk about our findings around the importance of a dispersed cloud for national security, reflecting on how Ukraine uh, very um, smartly moved a lot of their key infrastructure and data out of Ukraine and into a dispersed cloud around Europe in order to protect the function of of the government. We also reflect on how we've seen destructive cyber attacks uh, focusing inside Ukraine, but that defense appears to have have been a little bit stronger at this stage, at least. We also reflect on uh, what we see are espionage-related attacks happening outside of Ukraine, particularly in countries that are aligned with or supporting Ukraine, such as the United States and Poland. Um, And then finally, we talk about what we're seeing as far as cyber influence operations from Russia globally, uh, which have been quite extensive and very targeted. Um, So each of those sections dives into those topics uh, and gets into more detail about what we've seen. Great. So uh, let's take uh, one at a time then. How successful do you think Russia has been in terms of penetrating the the Ukrainian uh, networks? Uh, Do do you think that... uh, the Russian offensive in the cyberspace has significantly contributed to the invasion on the ground? Well, one thing to start with is just to note that we can only see what we can see. So we think it's important for us to release uh, to the public uh, and, of course, to the Ukrainian government and others what we are seeing. But just reminding everyone that, first of all, we have limitations on what we can see, particularly when attacks are happening on premise. Um, versus in the cloud. Um, and of course, you know, in environments where Microsoft doesn't have a presence. So we, we don't want to give the impression that we see everything that is happening. Um, but we do think that we are finding some um, interesting insights that we should share. So from that perspective, what we've seen so far is that the defense in Ukraine seems to be stronger than the offense. And that's due to a lot of different factors. Primarily, it's due to the Ukrainian government and the way that they have position themselves and prepared, you know, they have been at war for a lot longer than 100 days. 
um, and they've been attacked by Russia for quite a bit longer. And so they are, they were prepared for this, but they also have done a really great job, I think, in wartime innovation. Um, for example, the Ukrainian government pursued uh, some special legal measures that allowed Microsoft to automatically and remotely turn on a defensive feature within Microsoft Defender that would typically be required of an IT administrator, you know, to do that within their own network. But for the ability to act quickly and to turn on this defensive measure across networks, they they took innovative approaches to waiving previous requirements so that others could help them deploy that kind of solution faster. Those are the kinds of things we've seen the Ukrainian government do to protect themselves um, in a time of war. And so again, while we're not seeing everything and, and the war is not over, uh, what we see at this time is that um, that Ukraine has done a very good job with their defenses uh, versus the offense that we've seen from Russia. That's very interesting indeed. Um, when you say disperse cloud, is this a practice that um, we knew already before the conflict in Ukraine, or is that, uh, as you said, innovation coming from the from the Ukrainians? It was definitely an innovation um, prior to the invasion. So in in early February, the law in Ukraine was that no government data could be held offshore. It had to be within the Ukrainian borders. Uh, but the government realized with a, you know, with Russian troops lining their borders, that that was probably not the safest place for their data to reside. And so they quickly passed a measure to uh, legally lift that requirement and say that it could it could move to the cloud. It could be elsewhere. And then they engaged with partners like Microsoft and others to quickly transition their their data and their operations into the cloud. And they did it. Um, in the nick of time, uh, because as, as we've heard from the Ukrainian government, one of the very first targets of Russian missiles were Ukrainian data centers. But they had already, due to this innovation and quick action, they had uh, what we refer to, they've evacuated their data. They got it out of the country, particularly key, um, key processes that they needed to keep their government running. And so that's what I, that's what I mean by dispersed cloud. They, they quickly move their data. And again, I you know, give all credit to the Ukrainian government for acting quickly. Indeed, the, there is uh, a lot of credit to be attributed to the Ukrainian government. But how much does the support of, uh, you know, security companies like uh, Microsoft count in this conflict? Well, we are more than happy to partner and do what we can. Um, I think it's incredibly important that uh, other governments have come to their aid as well as technology companies. You know, we have contributed at this point over $240 million um, in in in-kind software and licenses as well as cash gifts to Ukraine and to allies supporting the effort. Um, And we think that that is uh, something that we will continue to do to continue to support them as they as they fight this, noting that, of course, the Ukrainians are the ones who are on the front lines bearing the brunt of this assault. Um, but it is essential for governments and industry to su- step up and support them um, in whatever ways we can. And, and the way that we've identified we can do that is by, you know, intelligence support, uh, such as this report and other things that we're we're noting, as well as um, financial support uh, and and you know, ensuring that when they do want to move their information into 
into our cloud that they're not doing that at any cost. Can you tell us more? Can you tell us more about the um, uh, foreign interference operations that the Russians have been running? Because this is something we have been seeing for some years now. Were there some elements of innovation uh, while the the war in Ukraine was ongoing? So you're right that this is something we've seen for quite a long time. In fact, in the report, when we open the chapter on on influence operations, we note that uh, in in the 80s, Russia planted stories in Indian newspapers talking about biolabs that the U.S. were setting up in Pakistan in order to spread the AIDS virus. Um, which was, you know, of course, not true, um, but caused a lot of panic in that part of the world um, and, and a lot of fear. And, and these are the kinds of operations Russia has been doing for a very long time. What has changed is the way that they can disperse that information and the speed at which they can, they can spread it around. Um, what we talk about in the report is a lot of what we've seen as far as how they, in similar ways to cyber attacks, how they go about launching narratives that they want um, to have out in the ecosystem in order to further their interests. Um, Similar to how malware spreads, for example, they pre-position a narrative, just like you would pre-position malware um, before an attack. Uh, So for the Biolabs example, the more recent version of the Biolabs example, this is a narrative they've used over and over again. Uh, But in the example of how it was used in Ukraine, There was a a YouTube video posted in November by a foreign American living in Moscow uh, talking about the presence of biolabs in Ukraine placed there by the United States. Nothing was done with that YouTube. It didn't get a lot of attention. It didn't have a lot of views. Fast forward to February um, when the the launch of the invasion was underway. uh, And all of a sudden, at the same time, 10 different known Russian media sites pointed to that November post and started to launch a bigger narrative about the U.S. uh, uh, having a presence of biolabs in in Ukraine. And then from there, about 300 networked known Russian-related media sites began to point back to those 10 stories and telling slightly different variations on it really amplified this story that then made its way into more traditional media streams. This is a classic example of how uh, Russia pre-positions a narrative ahead of when they actually plan to use it to their their advantage. Um, And there are other examples in the report of similar activity we've seen around how they uh, pre-position a story about a hospital no longer being a hospital, then they physically attack that hospital and point back and say, oh, we told you this wasn't a hospital, right? So they're very strategic in this way. Um, One of the things that we want to draw attention to in, in this particular report is, is how Russia launches these attacks together as a, as a sort of broader strategy. Um, you know, they view cyber attacks and cyber influence operations and physical attacks as all different tools in a toolkit that they have together in a single strategy. Though we think that democracies around the world and, and in fact, technology companies tend to respond to these things in siloed um, defense uh, processes. And indeed, uh, if the West has to learn from this um, invasion of Ukraine is that uh, we cannot respond in silos. But it's quite interesting what you said about the fact that the Russians were anticipating um, sort of their next move. So I wonder if this could not be used against them, um, because once you learn 
to spot these sort of artificial implantations, then you might um, second guess uh, in which direction you're they're going. Um, but I meant to ask you, uh, an issue that is less discussed is cyber espionage. Can you tell us what are the targets of uh, these operations uh, and, and what are the objectives uh, the Russians are trying to achieve? Sure. And, you know, again, while we can only see what we can see, what we've been able to identify is that there uh, are espionage operations underway in countries that have appeared to be supporting Ukraine, again, particularly the United States and Poland, as well as uh, several Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Finland, Sweden. Um, the targets within those countries tend to be uh, organizations or entities that likely have insights into how those countries are responding to the war. And so we, we believe, based on what we've seen, that, again, these are espionage attempts to gain information and insights about how the rest of the world is responding and will respond uh, to, to the invasion. So it's, we, can't, we can't say specifically what the um, exact data looks like that's been exfiltrated or, or, or what they're trying to target, but it does appear that they are trying to get information about, uh, about how these countries are going to respond to the war. So there was a recent statistics that showed that basically Russia uh, took over the United States uh, in being the most targeted country uh, by cyber attacks. And before you also mentioned that the defense is basically outgunning the, the offense in this uh, cyber war. So would you say that uh, Russia is losing? I'm, I'm not familiar with that study specifically. And as I mentioned, we don't have perfect information. So it's hard to say who's winning or losing at this stage. But uh, I will say, as I, I mentioned before, the Ukrainians have shown an incredible amount of resilience against all of these various attacks that they're facing. Um, and, uh, and I also want to note that we don't know what the future looks like. Um, we do not want this war to go on much longer, of course, but we don't know how long the war is. So from where we stand right now, it does appear that the defenses are, um, are holding strong, um, but it's, uh, it's an area where we should all be careful not to declare any kind of victory um, and continue to be vigilant against what will likely be ongoing attacks. And I mean, one of the characteristics of this hybrid um, warfare is that you don't only have state actors, you also have um, private actors, uh, some of which, uh, well, operate, uh, let's say, underground, like uh, hacking collectives. Uh, we have seen Anonymous basically declare war on Russia. To what extent do you think these uh, hacking groups are, are playing a role in this war? Well, I'll start by saying it's it's going to be um, up to the governments themselves to determine how they want to interact with other private sector, non-state groups, uh, such as the ones you described. Uh, we definitely have recommendations for ways that governments can can be more responsive to the hybrid threat that we're seeing. Um, one of the sections of the report actually goes into fairly lengthy recommendations for what we can all be doing to respond. Um, in particular, we have sort of a framework we talk about as far as the, the four Ds of, of how we can all respond. One is the detection side. Um, there's a role for a lot of people to play in detection, including likely some of those other groups. But I'll say from Microsoft's perspective, 
we're really stepping up our efforts on the detection side when it comes to threat intelligence around uh, information and influence operations from foreign governments. We just recently announced the acquisition of a company called Maburo Solutions, and they are out of New York, and they focus on these advanced persistent manipulators, or APMs, which is similar to traditional APTs, but those who are really focused on influence operations. And we'll have that team sit shoulder to shoulder with our more traditional cyber um, threat intelligence teams. And the idea is to see these threats as a more uh, comprehensive concern um, and to respond that way when it comes to detection. We also think there's a role for defense. And again, that's not just for the tech sector or just for governments. There are others who, who should be stepping up their efforts around defense. We view that as an area for Microsoft to consider how we defend on our own products, which is why we also mentioned in the report things, commitments that we are making as a company to ensure that we are uh, both uh, considerate of the, the freedom of expression of our users, but also ensuring that they will be met with authoritative content when they're on our platforms. Um, and then we think that there's a, a role as well for deterrence. And that's where really more government uh, intervention comes into play as far as what does it look like to deter countries like Russia and others from engaging in these kinds of holistic hybrid attacks. Um, uh, and so there's roles for lots of different organizations. We won't necessarily be the ones to dictate how people engage with each other, uh, but we know that we think that there's a lot more for us to do with government. Um, and there's a lot for all of us collectively to do in, in light of what we've seen Russia do in Ukraine. I'm sure a lot of people will eagerly read the part on how to deter Russia. Um, but a final question on um, concerns that have been raised uh, regarding uh, the potential spillover effects of these cyber attacks, because indeed, I mean, the economy is now so interconnected and complex that it's very difficult to put a border uh, even to a cyber attack. Have you seen um the the effect of the war in Ukraine uh, spreading beyond uh, the border of the country into Europe or or even globally yeah I mean we're we're all uh sort of bracing ourselves and and watching to see what the second secondary effects of the war are um there are a couple of things to note there one on the cyber attack side, Uh, we do mention that so far what we've seen as far as destructive attacks in Ukraine, they have been targeted, meaning we have not seen at this point, uh, we've not seen Russia deploy any wormable type offenses, meaning the NotPetya style um, uh, that would spread. And in fact, as we saw with NotPetya, even though Ukraine was the original target of that, we did see it, of course, spread globally, impacting everyone, including Russia. Um We've not seen that in this particular campaign yet, acknowledging that Russia obviously has that tool in their toolkit. Um, and so, so far from a spillover effect on cyber, seems to be fairly targeted. We'll see what happens next. Uh, on the inf influence operations side, we are really concerned with uh, where Russia has already gone, <clears throat> with where Russia has already gone to spread the narrative that the West is to blame Um, for uh, for what will likely be a pretty severe food insecurity crisis. There's a lot of narratives being shared by Russian media um, in Africa, um, in Southeast Asia, and in Latin America in particular, where they are blaming sanctions and the West 
for the inability to get food out of Ukraine, wheat in particular. Uh, of course, that is not the, re the real situation on the ground. The reality is Russia started this war and that Russia is blocking the export of wheat, um, which will likely lead to a food crisis. But they are out ahead of everyone on that narrative. Now, one of the things you said earlier, I wanted to come back to because this is an example where there is a way to disrupt this activity. And that's actually the fourth the fourth D in our framework is how do you disrupt this? And we think when it comes to influence operations, the best way to disrupt it is through transparency. Um, transparency by governments, transparency by tech companies. When we see these kinds of narratives forming and we see how they're being targeted, we should speak up and say, we think that there is a, uh, we all believe there's a coming crisis around food um, in certain parts of the world as a direct result of Russia's activities. Um, however, Russia is trying to blame sanctions for it, and that's not the case. So however we can get out ahead of these stories, it really does take the wind out of the sails of the story once it starts to land. It, it might be too late on this particular one. I don't know, but I do think that there's more we can do as far as spotting these kinds of stories and then speaking up when we see this. Ginny Badanes is Senior Director of the Democracy Forward at Microsoft. Thank you, Ginny. Thank you for having me. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening. <laughs>